Well, good morning, Bethel. Good morning. Welcome to um, Rusty Pastor Sunday. Just, just preparing you for that. Thank you. Thank you for the welcome. It is good to be back. Um, we had a phenomenal time uh, on sabbatical, and um, you know, if I'm honest, we didn't miss everything about Fairbanks. You know, we did miss most of you. Just, just kidding. Just kidding. That's a little Bilbo Baggins for you there, right? Um, we did miss you. Uh, we missed our home church. We missed your fellowship. We missed your love of the Lord and of his word and uh, the way we worship together. So it is good to be home. Uh, nice to rest from work, uh, but good to be home and re-engage with our church family. So uh, I want to say thank you uh, for the sabbatical, for giving that to us. Um, it's very generous, very generous. Uh, it was a benefit to me personally, uh, to our family. And I would tell you, and this might be unexpected to you, it was a witness to others. It was a witness uh, to other friends that I uh, connected with of your kindness and care for uh, your pastors here. Uh, It was a witness to other um, Christians and Christian workers to consider the wisdom of sabbatical in their own lives. And uh, so uh, I thank you uh, sincerely on behalf of our family for that. Um, I thought you might like to know just a little bit about um, what we did, in case you you didn't already hear. Um, uh, First of all, right after Easter, I I left for two weeks in Turkey, and I know many of you are like, Turkey, what are you doing? You know, we tend to think of Jerusalem as the Holy Land and the place of the New Testament, and there's truth to that, of course. But Turkey, what is modern-day Turkey, is where the church went. And so the first century uh, church sort of explodes there. And so I got to kind of track the Apostle Paul's work uh, through Turkey and got to visit many churches, which you'll hear um, more about. about. Um, I took a thousand pictures while I was there. So if you'll dim the lights, (laughs) I won't do that to you. Not exactly. Um, So I took two weeks there and had a chance to sail around on the Mediterranean to a couple of the ports. And then we did some hiking and some walking through the different cities and uh, I'll tell you more about that. I can't steal all the thunder right now, but it was wonderful. Uh, and then we had uh, two. Uh, we had a week uh, as a family on uh, the Oregon coast in a little cabin there on the beach, and uh, we just played. We played in the ocean and flew the kite and made sandcastles and played board games and did watercolors and watched the NBA finals and whatnot. So <laughs> the important things. Um, and then uh, Amy and I, after spending you know, a week with the kids under the same roof, ditched them, and uh, we went to Boston, uh, just outside of Boston, Southboro, uh, where that Christian Study Center, Labrie, is located. That has been a refuge for me over the years, and it was fun to take my bride there and to uh, enjoy that together and, and just be enriched in our love for each other and our love for the Lord. So it was um, very, very sweet. Uh, coming back to Fairbanks was interesting. I learned about some sort of a point system for Eric sightings in town. Did you all hear about that? Uh, that explains some strange photography moments that I found myself in. And uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but there is a paparazzi corps in, Fairba- or in Bethel Church that is alive and well. Um, my dentist even got in on this. After a cleaning, I was entrapped on my way out. No kidding. A picture of me with a cat in the background... I really was set up. That's not, I didn't stage that. I just was looking at the door trying to figure out why is there a cat on the door (laughs) only to see that I was um, 
being taken a picture of. Um, I think next time I go in for a cleaning, I'm going to bring a support animal, <laughs> like a parrot on my shoulder. Or I think that would be fun. Um, but no, and all in all, um, our sabbatical was rich. Um, and I want to thank Pastor Adam and Pastor Mark for their excellent preaching uh, while I was gone. And last week, Jeff Green, who filled in, didn't he do a fantastic job? And, um, and especially uh, just the rest of the staff that covered for the absences, so uh, thank you. Um, we are starting a new series uh, today, so drum roll, please. The book of Revelation. How about that? Ooh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you get too excited or too scared uh, or sad or however you feel about the book of Revelation, let me just clarify something. We're only actually going to do the first three chapters. That's it over the next eight weeks. And so the title of this uh, series is Seven Letters to the Seven Churches. This picture was actually taken in Boston. This is Trinity Church, a very historic church there. Maybe you've seen it, some of you. Um, and I just thought this image of this ancient church reflected off of the glass of a modern building across the street is a pretty good you know, depiction of the way we find ourselves in this world. We hold this ancient and beautiful and wonderful truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we hold it in a world that is moving along and chasing other things. And we live in that tension of sort of the ancient and the sacred with sort of the everyday. Uh, so anyways, that's our title slide for uh, the series here. And uh, I'm excited to preach this, these three uh, chapters of Revelation, particularly because I got to visit a couple of these churches uh, while I was in Turkey. And so I did bring a couple pictures for you. The first one here, this is Ephesus, Main Street. It was so hot there. Uh, I know I'm not going to get any sympathy or compassion for that, but it was so hot there. Uh, but amazing and so stimulating. Um, this is Main Street. You can see at the bottom of the street uh, the facade for the library uh, that was there. And this is a close-up of that. And um, I actually got to see the theater where the riot broke out, where Paul was nearly killed. Remember where they chanted, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, and they you know, nearly killed these guys. And I can tell you Artemis isn't that great because uh, you know, she's not there. Uh, anyways... Um, that's Ephesus, and I, um, one of the things that surprised me about Turkey while I was there is there are cats everywhere. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Here I am in Ephesus, and look at that. And my roommate, uh, Robert Combs, a new friend, I stayed with him a couple weeks, and uh, he looked at this, and he said, oh, look, caterpillar. <laughs> Ask your neighbor if you don't get it. I might come to you. I spent two weeks with a guy who had more puns than anybody I've ever met, so it, it was rough. And not only did I get to see Ephesus, which kind of uh, is the first uh, letter that, uh, or the first church that the letters are written to, but I also got to see the last place, which is Laodicea. An amazing, beautiful day, uh, beautiful day, and the light was incredible, and uh, we spent a couple hours here. It was a massive sight, uh, really fascinating to see it firsthand. And uh, here again is just a picture um, as we're walking through sort of an unearthed uh, section there, but these red poppies were just glorious against uh, all of the backdrop. And uh, this was one of my favorite spots and impacted me uh, maybe the most while I was there. So I'm excited to share that particular letter with you. But you've got to come all the way 
to the end uh, to the series to get that one. So. so the question maybe some of you are asking, why just the first three chapters? Uh, if you were to ask Pastor Adam, he would tell you it's because I'm chicken. <laughs> and he's a little bit right, if I'm honest. Honestly, uh, I feel like I am still trying to figure out the book of Revelation. Uh, I, I love it. I respect it. I hold it in high regard. But it puzzles me. Uh, there's so much mystery there, uh, so many images I don't fully understand or grasp. It's, and, uh, um, and what we find about the book of Revelation is that most of it fits into a genre that we would call apocalypse. If you have your handout, you can pull it out and keep along here. We're just getting our bearings as we start this off, as we kind of look at some elements of Revelation. Most of the book fits into a genre known as apocalyptic or apocalypse. Uh, in fact, that word, apocalypse, is the Greek word that begins uh, the letter. It's translated for us, revelation. Uh, apocalyptic uh, scripture is, is defined by Alan Holberg, who was one of our Christian Thought Forum speakers here a couple years ago, as a narrative of highly symbolic visions unveiling cosmic secrets. And, uh, and so uh, that's, again, according to Alan Holberg. I personally find apocalyptic, the apocalyptic genre to be a difficult genre to preach. That's one of my challenges, because preaching is by nature proclamation, declaring truths that we know confidently. And there certainly are some truths in Revelation that we can say, yes, absolutely, with confidence, we can see this clearly, but there also are so many opinions on different things that sometimes it's difficult to declare or to proclaim. Incredibly valuable for study. Uh, but sometimes I think it sets itself up better for a Sunday school class or a small group or something like this. So I just kind of give that little bit of a disclaimer, and I will tell you that I will keep studying it, and maybe someday when I grow up, I will preach the remainder. So um, a bit of an overview of the book. Revelation can be broken up into two main parts or two main genres, if you will. Uh, the first one we might call epistolary. How about that for a fancy word, a good $5 word there? epistolary, or a letter, a kind of a letter, the nature of a letter. And I think that's what we find right at the beginning in the first three chapters, seven letters to seven churches. They're letters. I mean, we might look at the, the letter to Ephesus almost as second Ephesians, you know, something of that nature. It's a genre that we understand. We're well acquainted with that in the New Testament. Uh, we see an introduction. We see the author. We see about its message. We see about its audience. We see the encouragement and the exhortation that follow there. Uh, and then the second uh, genre, I would say, especially as in chapters 4 through 21, is, again, what I've already said, apocalyptic, which is a foretelling or an unveiling of what is to come. So I think we find two genres within the book of Revelation, epistolary and apocalyptic, and I would sort of uh, commend you to look at the, uh, the book as a whole that way. The purpose of the book, if you hear nothing else, if you hear Revelation and you glaze over and you start thinking about dinner or this afternoon or something like that, if you hear nothing else this morning, I would want you to take this. The purpose, the overall purpose of Revelation is encouragement. It's encouragement, especially to the persecuted church, the struggling church. And that's what we find sort of in these seven churches, especially in what is modern-day Turkey here, these seven churches uh, were struggling under persecution at the hands of Domination. 
you might be familiar with uh, Nero as the, uh, one of the emperors that delivered great persecution to the church, especially in the 60s uh, and 80s, 63, 65, and claimed the lives of the Apostle Peter and Paul. Domination was the subsequent uh, Roman emperor that persecuted the church heavily, and it was decades later. And, um, and this was really brought home to us in part of our visit. In fact, when I was in Cappadocia, one of the things that we visited there were the underground caves where the church went during a time of persecution to escape uh, particularly some of these kinds of things. And, um, and so this is a picture um, of, it, of one of those caves. Uh, what you're looking at here, in fact, let me just read this to you first of all. Uh, this made me think of when we were there, um, Hebrews 12, uh, 36 through 38, I'll read it to you. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These are our brothers and sisters, and this is our Christian heritage. These are people who stood for the gospel that we stand for today. And uh, it was very impressive um, to see their devotion to the Lord. This cave that you're looking at right here maybe just might look like one little cave, but in fact... Um, th this location where we were here, this is 10 stories deep. This is just one room, and it sprawls on and on. We explored it for over an hour. In some places, we had to kind of get on our bellies and crawl through the carved-out tunnels. These caves are built in what's known as tuffa rock. It's kind of like lava rock, and you can just scratch it out and yet leave sort of this um, uh, sort of vacuum of a room behind. And... Um, and so they estimate that in this 10-story location, there were 5,000 Christians underground. And this is one of 100 in the region. Let that sink in. The world was not worthy of them. Uh, one of the things that was really impressive to me about this, um, if you think about it, because of Nero's persecution... Christians leave Jerusalem and the Holy Land area, and they go to what is modern-day Turkey. And persecution continues under domination. And they flee that by going underground. And you might think that that's enough to say, you know, I've had enough of this faith. Where is this God? Right? And yet, in these underground carvings, you see here this room, and this is actually a kitchen in different places uh, where food would be prepared and set out. But one of the other kinds of rooms that you see carved out in these underground caves are chapels. Because even in their hiding, they were worshiping their God. And that is impressive. Uh, you can understand, however, Christians under this kind of persecution, fleeing to these extents, the kinds of questions they might be asking, such as, where is the Lord? Why has he not yet returned? How are we supposed to live faithful lives in this world such as it is? How will God make all of this right? Where is the kingdom he promised? Where is his rule and his reign? Goodness and justice and the shalom that we expect. And when will he establish that? You can understand these kinds of questions. They're the questions we would be asking 
if we were having dinner in this cave, right? And maybe they're the questions that you're asking amidst your personal struggles right here, right now. And we read about this. So you wake up, you open the news, you read along, and you discover another mass shooting, 20 dead in Texas. Or you hear about child exploitation or human trafficking, rampant immorality, hostility one to another, the growth of a secular state, the marginalization of Christians. And you think the same thing. Where is the Lord? And where is his kingdom? And when will it come? Right? Uh, Amy and I were having dinner several years ago uh, with another ministry family here in Fairbanks, uh, dear friends of ours. And as we were talking about uh, some of the grief and the ills of the age and our outrage and fatigue from some of these things, the woman that uh, was sitting at the table with us blurted out, why doesn't God just end it? And we thought, that question resonated with us. Does the Lord get tired of these things? And why isn't he tired of it yet? Why doesn't he bring the kingdom? I long for it. Um, And I hope you do too. Uh, It's hard to be here at times. You look around and you see both coherence and incoherence, right? You see integration and disintegration. And we look around and, and we can kind of get a sense of the way things were meant to be, supposed to be, and yet they're not that way. And we can see the way that sin and the fallenness of man really has ravaged the world such as it is. When God made things, he looked at them and declared that they were good. They were good, but since sin has come in, that goodness has been marred. And we look forward to the reintegration that comes. The early church expressed their outrage of the broken world with a uh, similar frustration and yet a hopeful refrain. It was in the Aramaic word that you might know, Maranatha, which means, come Lord Jesus. It, It takes our frustration and turns it into a prayer of longing. Come Lord Jesus, we want this. What I want you to hear again is that the purpose overall of the book of Revelation and especially these first three verses or these first three chapters here is to provide encouragement to Christians, those who are struggling with these same kinds of questions, looking for the Lord's return, to give them assurance of that all of this is in God's hands, and His kingdom will come in His timing. And so we might sort of ask the question: Well, how does it provide encouragement? How does it set about doing that? Then, uh, first of all, I would say this: It shows the Christian. Uh, the ultimate victory of Christ Jesus over all who oppose him. It gives glimpses of his future and coming kingdom. It shows us these images and these visions that we're meant to sort of bask in their glory and say this will be good. And while it encourages, it also exhorts us to lives of faithful obedience. Not growing complacent in our waiting, but continually tethered to the Lord and to his plan and to his coming kingdom. And that is what we are meant to see. So let's look at some of the first few verses here. Chapter 1-1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it because the time is near. 
So you can see right away here in the prologue, it's concerned with the source of the message, the recipients of the message, and it kind of frames uh, for us what is to follow here. So first of all, I want to just recognize the author, the human author that is, is the Apostle John. This is written around 80, 95, 96, and it's written uh, from John while he is on the island of Patmos. He's exiled there as part of the persecution of Domination. He is sent to this kind of like a uh, work camp, uh, for lack of a better word. I mean, I don't know, an island in the Aegean Sea next to the Mediterranean doesn't sound too bad, but this was forced labor, and uh, it was a difficult place to be. And so part of Dominician's persecution of the church was to persecute its pastor. John, in the later days of his life, was a pastor in the church of Ephesus. After caring for Jesus' mother Mary after she died, he moved to Ephesus and he lived there as sort of a bishop and an elder and pastored in the area and to some of the regional churches, which is kind of what we see as we find seven letters to seven churches. These were churches that he ministered to. Um, I, I have given you a map in your handout here of sort of the, uh, the island of Patmos. Uh, oops, I don't see it here. Here it is. You see the seven churches uh, kind of all along this trade route, and you see the island of Patmos there. Um, I had, uh, this, Patmos is kind of like modern-day Alcatraz, if you want to think about it that way. And it was funny, um, I met a fellow this week, strange fellow, uh, we were, t- I, I feel like I only meet strange people, but, you know, uh, I, we were talking, and he, he confessed to me, he said, um, I've actually spent some time in Alcatraz. I said, really? I said, what for? He said, a tour. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, uh, so there is that. Um, so that's kind of where the letter is coming from and the circumstances behind it. Uh, and then in these introductory verses, we get something that I think is a little bit puzzling, which I'll, I'll just acknowledge here. Uh, we see two references to time. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. And then in uh, verse 3, at the end of it, Blessed are those who hear and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Well, that's a puzzler, isn't it? When we think about the word soon, these references might make the average Christian reader blush a little bit, because this is written 2,000 years ago, so how is it that this meets the, the word here or the idea of soon? Uh, almost nobody thinks about soon as 2,000 years, right? Well, son, I'd like you to take the trash out. Okay, Dad, I'll do it soon. <laughs> when will dinner be done? Soon. When will DOT finish that road project? Uh, soon. It's going to feel like 2,000 years. But uh, So when we hear the word soon, none of us thinks 2,000 years. So what's, what's going on here? Well, there's a bunch of different theories on this, as there is about a lot of things in Revelation. But the one that I find compelling is that probably the better understanding of the Greek phrase here, entaki, translated soon, uh, is suddenness or abruptness, even, even imminence, if I can sort of unload that word theologically. In other words... Think about uh, an expectant mother. She's rejoicing. She's found out she's with child. And she knows the intervals ahead of her. She knows the timeline. Nine months of gestation. 
morning sickness, uncomfortable growth, swelling of ankles, right? Bad night's sleep. Some of you are going, amen to all this. I feel it. Or sensitivity and smell. Uh, I had a friend, and she said that when she was pregnant, the smell of her husband made her nauseous. (laughs) I don't know if pregnancy is necessary for that, but... um. But even when one knows, okay, I, I'm, I'm with child, and this is, these are the months ahead of me. These are the times ahead of me. This is going to unfold over this period of time. When, when this little person arrives, it is sudden. It is abrupt. I, I remember looking at little baby Aiden after months of anticipating his arrival, going, where did you come from? And feeling the weight of that. Our lives had been changed and completely reoriented around this little guy. Uh, or, or maybe it's when a child graduates from high school or college or gets married. You know, it, it takes decades to get to these points. But when the moment comes upon you, it feels sudden and abrupt. And you ask yourself, well, are we all ready for this? Are they ready for this? Is the world ready for this? Uh, And I think that's probably a better understanding of this phrase translated here, soon. Even while some of these things may begin to unfold right in front of them, the nearness or the soon arrival of the Lord, I think, is meant to capture a sense of suddenness, abruptness, and even imminence, so that we would live in tension, not just complacent in this world, but ready for the Lord's return. In other words, though the church has been waiting for a couple of millennium, the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom and the restoration of shalom, when that happens, when the trumpet sounds and the Lord descends, it'll be well with our soul, as the song says, but it will also take our breath away. Because all of the world as we know it will be reoriented and reordered rightly around him. It'll be a new thing that we have yet to see. And so I think there, this uh, idea of soon and near is about the suddenness of his glorious arrival and the wonder of the reordering of things. Um, I think of the, the phrase again in the same hymn, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Uh, we want to be able to say that. And so the Christian is made aware from Revelation that God has already set things in motion. Uh, He has activated the launch sequence. The countdown is coming. Uh, And he does this to create a sense of encouragement and readiness and to compel us to live responsible and faithful lives as Christ's ambassadors. I'd ask you to consider this, even while we might be a little bit uncomfortable with the idea or the mystery even of this soonness and not knowing exactly. Consider if John hadn't said soon. Imagine if we didn't have that. Imagine if it was just pictures of the Lord's return, but we weren't told that it might be soon. Imagine the complacency that Christians would live with, right? Or maybe even worse if he had told us exactly when. 2040, that's when the Lord returns, that's when the kingdom is established. What would happen in all of those years in between? Sometimes we long for something until we look at what it might be like if we actually got it. And then we realize, I don't want that at all. I really like the mystery. Let me show it to you another way. 
Uh, Think about leaving your teenage kid at home, for those of you who have one. You don't leave at 5 o'clock and say, I'm going to be back precisely at 10.30. What do you say? I could be back at any moment. I could be back at any time. Do the right thing, right? That's, and I think the Lord does something like that for us. Praise God that he has left the precise moment of his return a mystery, that we would live in hope and yet live faithful lives while hoping. And uh, So the message is not to lull us into inactivity, but to compel us to faithful service. Well, let's get on with the, the greetings and the doxology here. Verse 4, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. Ah. Good words, huh? What an intro. What a comfort when we glimpse uh, the glory of our Savior in heaven. We see this phrase at the beginning here, to the seven churches. And I will tell you that there have been all kinds of interpretive approaches to the uh, book of Revelation. Some of them are, I think, uh, better than others, as you can imagine. Uh, On your handout, I've I've given these to you, and I want to just very quickly go through them. There are five, uh, at least five approaches Uh, to uh, the book of Revelation, five interpretive approaches to the book of Revelation. The first we might call historical, and it basically says that all of these events that are given here in Revelation will kind of happen periodically over the course of the church age. Uh, And it tends to look at the seven churches, these letters to the seven churches, not so much as historical churches in that, that day and age, but seven epochs of time, or sort of the church over seven different periods throughout upcoming history. Um, I'll tell you, and maybe puzzling to some of you, that's not the view that I I take. The the second view is what's called the preterist view. And, And almost completely opposite, it holds that all of these events will take place before the fall of Jerusalem, and even dates the letter before AD 70. I think there's all kinds of problems with that, and has that view has really kind of fallen out of vogue because you just can't square history with these events or with these revelations, and it doesn't square with the dating of the book either. Another view is the futurist view, and this one's got actually three sub-views within it. You see how confusing revelation can be, <laughs> how puzzling it can be. Uh, it, kind of, it basically says that all of these events are future uh, and, and uh, yet to come even towards the end of times. Uh, And then they have different ways of looking at the seven letters to the seven churches. And I'll leave that there for now. The fourth one is called the idealist or the spiritual view. And it basically looks at Revelation and some of these these visions and prophecies. And it basically, it doesn't see it in a literal sense. It almost sees it as an allegory. Like this is a story about almost like the battle between good and evil. God versus his enemies. Here's some pictures. And we sort of cycle through these things throughout history. 
and I, I don't find that to be compelling either. And so the fifth view, the last one is always the one the preacher likes, uh, I take is the dualist, and it kind of borrows from a couple of them. In other words, it looks at chapters one through three and basically says these are actual letters to actual churches, sort of the epistolary nature of it. And then it looks at chapters four through seven and says these are events that are yet to come. And there's even, a, I think, a good point for this in a later verse that we'll see about what is, what is now and what is yet to come. And I think that provides a nice interpretive lens for the book. So I think first three chapters about those historic churches and chapters 4 through 21 are about what will unfold in the, in the future, particularly towards uh, the end of times. Uh, so let me give you a little bit of support for why I, I view that or, or hold it that way. I think John is writing again to actual churches, as you see on your map. These churches right there in the region, it, it gives a regional reference. They're even listed in a particular order that you would visit them traveling this particular trade route. It's even, they're not only regional, but they're listed in, in a particular sequence. And these are churches that John himself cared for. And finally, I think the other reason that this is compelling, that these are actual letters to actual churches, not to epochs down the line, uh, is that the issues that are addressed are the relevant and historical issues of each of these churches. And this was made very clear to me while I was sitting in Laodicea. So you'll hear that really strongly when we get to that particular letter. But again, you have to come all the way to the end for that one. Uh, there's another question here. What are these seven spirits? The Greek word is pneumaton. These seven spirits before the throne of God or angels or stars as they're referred to a couple of different times. Uh, this reference also appears again sort of in verse 20, and it's a puzzler. And so, but here it is. You ready for the answer? I don't know. And let me just say this to you too. Christian, it is okay and even right at times to look at the scriptures and say, I don't know. I think sometimes the greatest ill has been made of saying, I absolutely know when one doesn't, and to proclaim that the scripture says something that is false. It is fair to say I don't know. Uh, in my studies, one of the things that, I, that was really shocking to me is as you read the commentators, there's always a variety of opinions, but they're usually dogmatic about theirs. Nobody was dogmatic about their opinion about who these seven spirits or seven stars were. So very quickly, here's five different possibilities. Number one, could be a reference to the Holy Spirit, almost a sevenfold reference to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This finds evidence in Isaiah 11 and Zechariah 4. It's possible, but I'm not sure. Some say it's a reference to Christ himself and that these, these seven spirits are just a way of speaking of his omniscience, of his, his vantage point of all that's happening in the world, even of these specific churches. Um, maybe. I, I think there's problems with that. Some say that these are angels in heaven like seraphim, that somehow are representatives or even guardians of specific churches. Maybe. <laughs> There's strengths and weaknesses to that. Some say these are earthly ministers as the letters are written to the angel at the church of, and somehow these are like pastors or leaders or messengers of particular churches. I, I have real problems with that one, but anyways. And then there's a fifth one that I'll be honest, I don't even understand. Some people believe that these, these seven um, spirits are somehow a personification of the prevailing spirit of these churches. And I just glaze over at that one. I don't know. I don't know what you mean. 
So what I mean to say is, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm actually okay with it. Because what gives me comfort is as I look at this, and I look at the image that's portrayed here, particularly as we go on, we see that Christ holds these seven stars, which he refers to later on as these seven spirits, and he holds them in his sovereign hand. Christ whom we know and whom we have trusted. And so even though there is puzzling information here, there is a clear and certain Savior who is sovereign over all. And I think we have every reason to have comfort in that. We also see in the image that, that unfolds, we see Christ standing among these churches, these lampstands which are uh, identified as the churches. And he stands among them in their persecution, in their struggle. He's not absent or missing or unaware or uninformed or uncaring. He knows and he is near. He is proximally near. I couldn't help but to think of the old children's song. He's got the whole world in his hands. Even these, these stars or these spirits, whatever they refer, reference. And so that is, that is what we are meant to, to take from this, um, this passage. Overwhelming comfort because Christ is the source and the subject of revelation. And he is the one in whom we trust. I would tell you this. One of the extraordinary features in the book of Revelation one of its great contributions to the whole of Scripture are the glimpses that we are given of the risen and glorified Lord right now. That is one of the great treasures of the book. If I were to ask you, think about Jesus, what comes to mind? Probably most of us go to some sort of a historical Jesus. We probably think of this fair-skinned fellow with long flowing hair, blue sash, sitting talking gently with children. And that might be our image of Jesus. Uh, some of you may think immediately of a crucified Savior, bloodied and beaten. Uh, some of you might think of one of his post-resurrection appearances, even as he appeared, say, on the road to Emmaus, as he talked to the disciples there. Uh, he's risen but somehow still ordinary, even ordinary enough to be mistaken for the gardener. But what is really beautiful about Revelation is that there we see God the Son in His present glory. We see Him how He is. We get a glimpse of His power and His majesty. No mistaking this one for an ordinary man. So as I read these next verses... Just let the image of our risen and glorified Lord wash over you. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, clear reference there to the, the vision in Daniel, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, 
as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What a vision. When you think of Jesus... Is this what you think of? Some of our imaginings need to improve, don't they? I think what's fascinating about this too is is when the Apostle John, remember the Apostle John was one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John, well acquainted with Jesus, very close to him, was, was privy to some unique events. And yet when he sees this vision of the glorified Jesus, whom he knew well, he fell as though dead and was comforted. But amazing, amazing. And what I think we need to take from this is that the children of God, that is us, if you've taken refuge for your sin in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then we cannot help but to be comforted when we're presented with such an awesome picture of our King. The glimpse, the present glory of Christ is to find comfort in our present distress. We are reminded that right now, Jesus is not an ailing man on a cross, not a lamb silent before shearers, and not a victim of a corrupt court. He is a risen and regal king, and he is coming to set all things to right and to bring shalom. And there is a sweetness to being reminded about Jesus as he is, not as he was. And so Revelation, we might say, overall, is pastoral encouragement from John to these churches to be encouraged in the midst of their present struggles as they glimpse their risen Lord and to be called into obedience. Let me close with the ending words here of Revelation chapter 1. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You may be leaving this morning with more questions than answers. Uh, Sometimes uh, studying the scriptures can do that for us. But I would like to leave you with an image. Maybe it's a little cheesy or a little corny, but it's working for me at the moment. I think the book of Revelation is an awful lot like an afghan. You can look at it and sort of marvel over its stitches and its design and wonder, how did a cable pattern get into this collection of yarn? And we can puzzle over its complexities or we can just take it and pull it up and take comfort in its warmth and enjoy it. Revelation is meant to encourage. It's meant to encourage the church and call her to obedience. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have all things well in hand even that which is mysterious to us, whether it's in the text or whether it's in our lives. As we read here, we are comforted seeing the glory and the majesty of Christ our King, 
who came for us and was dead and yet now lives forevermore. And that is our hope because we have taken refuge in him. Uh, Guide us as we study this book and give us understanding that we might know you and love you more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.